0: Warning, the following may cause you to question everything you know about life. Listener discretion is advised.
1: listening to the culture shock
2: good
0: moment and merry christmas this is christian hawkins producer and co-host of the culture shock i just wanted to uh thank you guys so much for all your support in our pilot episode i really appreciate all the feedback and the love i wanted to do something special for christmas we have a uh, sermon a live sermon recording of our other co-host, um, Pastor Matthew Glaze. Uh, man, he just does an amazing job. I just have to really brag on him. I'm so thankful to, to have uh, his friendship also as a mentor, and I cannot wait to uh, work with him in Season 1 next month. Season 1 is definitely going to be an amazing uh, start to this uh, podcast, so I really, really hope you uh, subscribe and continue listening to our podcast as we start a new chapter here. Enjoy the sermon.
1: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're getting there, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this morning. Lord God, thank you for the beauty of music. God, the beauty of joy that we even know what that word means because you've created it. Look, as we turn now to your words, we turn now to your scriptures. Look, God, let your words be heard, not mine. God, let your spirit move in here. God, let your spirit change us and shape us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, you know, superhero movies are kind of a big deal these days. And that may be a little bit of an understatement, to be fair. Uh, Just to kind of give you a a proximity, Marvel, who's the spearhead of the superhero craze these days, get this, they've amassed a box office revenue, just in ticket sales alone, not merchandise and all that stuff, just ticket sales, of $13.4 billion. It's kind of shocking. By comparison, just to give you some point of reference, the next two closest franchise series and movies, uh, one is Harry Potter, so go nerds. Harry Potter has $8 billion, and Star Wars, go bigger nerds, has $7 billion. But $13.4 billion, that's crazy. Superheroes are a big deal in our culture today. And it could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be, um, I don't want to be sexist or anything, but it could be for us guys that, you know, there's big explosions in superhero movies, right? We see the big explosion and we're like, ooh, ah, it's so cool. I love Superman. And then maybe for the ladies in the room, again, not trying to just profile or anything, but I don't know if you've noticed, they never pick ugly people to be superheroes. Like, I'm not getting a call tomorrow to be Captain America or something like that, okay? So we just understand... It's good-looking people. And I bet you at this point you're kind of asking yourself, Matt, what does this have to do with Christmas? Right? You know, I really believe if we dig a little bit deeper into these movies and our feelings, I think we would find that there's something inside of us that really kind of longs for heroes in some way. Uh, Something inside of us that says, like, we want to be rescued. And I really think, honestly... I think that was put in our hearts by God. And I think that honestly, Jesus is that glorious hero that we truly need. But to be fair, and I want to be very clear here, for me to sit here and call Jesus just a hero on the level of Superman or Batman or anything like that, that's a gross understatement of who God actually is. He is the savior of the world, he is the Messiah, but he is the greatest thing we could ever imagine. But he is the one that we desperately long for in our hearts to be saved by. He is the one that we so desperately need a savior. He's the one that fills that hole that God put there for us. And we're going to see that today in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, look in there at verse 1. We're going to start there. I'm going to read all the way to verse 10. Then we're going to kind of slowly walk back through that and hopefully pick it apart and understand it better. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So today, in order for us to understand why Jesus truly is that great, even better than a hero that we actually need, we need to understand three things. We need to understand, first off, is that what did God save us from? What were we in danger of? Secondly, I want to ask the question of, well, why did Jesus come? That's the great question of Christmas, right? Why why is there a Savior sitting in a, a feeding trough somewhere? Why did Jesus come? And then the third question, I hope to be very practical, is what do we do once we've been rescued by God? So that first question, what did God save us from? If you look back in the verse there, it gives you to you very explicitly in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So I think it asks a question, then: what what exactly do sin and trespasses mean? I'm not going to belittle you. I know most of you have grown up in the church. You've heard the word sin many times. You have a very good working definition of what sin means. So I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but I want to at least maybe give you just another another angle to look at sin a little bit more today. Um, I can't get too technical, I'm not a doctor. But to give you an example, sin as a visual picture is the idea of an archer who's at a target range and he pulls that arrow back, right? He's aiming at that target down there, not at anybody over here, over here. And he lets it go and he misses the mark. You know, he's aiming for that little circle, that bullseye down there, and he misses that mark. And that, that area of miss would be called the sin. That's You sinned, you went below, or you went above, or in my case, you went way off in left field, and you missed the mark. I'm not a great hunter. I do really well hunting at HEB. I get all of my meat there. But so hear this this morning. Sin is not just the things that you do wrong in life. It is that. It is the lying. It is the stealing. It is the cheating. It is the hatred in your heart. But it's not just that. It's also when you miss the mark. When you're not good enough. When there's a standard to be met and you are down here, right? Husbands, when you don't measure up as a spouse. Kid, when you don't measure up as a child to your parent and the expectations that God has put there. Individual, when you as a friend don't measure up to expectations as a friend. That is sin and Jesus died for that. Someone needs to hear that this morning, that God didn't just die for the things you messed up on, but he also died for the ways that you came up short in life. So I have to ask the question, then, where does that lead? If that's, if that's what we're doing, if Paul says that's what you're living like, well, then what the question is, well, where does that go? What's my destination if I choose that path? And he says it very clearly, he says, you're dead. And you would think, well, well we're not zombies, I mean, some of our middle schoolers are, but that's just they don't get enough sleep, but most of us aren't zombies walking around here, right? So it's a metaphor, obviously, Paul's speaking metaphorically, but I think it's such a good metaphor because what Paul is trying to communicate to the people in Ephesus is that, hey, before salvation, you had no hope. You're like a dead person. Dead people don't sit in their grave and say, you know what? If I could just maybe it would be a little more morally good if I could just maybe say a few less lies. Maybe I can get out of this grave, right? Maybe I can get back up there with the rest of those living folk. Dead people don't fix themselves. They're dead. They have no hope. They have no change. And Paul says that was you, that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You had no hope of getting better outside of a supernatural change, the same way with Lazarus, right? Lazarus was sitting in a tomb, and he wasn't going to will himself out of that tomb until Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come on out. And he had to obey, because only dead people respond to supernatural voice. They can only respond to the voice of God. And so with us, too, we may not be physically dead, but metaphorically, spiritually on the inside, we are there before Christ, and our only hope is for Christ to call out like he called out to Lazarus and say, come out of that death. So let me you the question then, why did Jesus come? And I think a better practical question for that is why did Jesus come to die? Because right, he's the one person in history whose chief end goal was to die, was to go to the cross. He's the only person in history who had that goal in mind. Hey, your whole purpose, Go to the cross. So why did Jesus come to to die? And I can give you many, many uh, reasons why. I'm going to give you just two this morning, but I think they're so good. I think the first reason Jesus came, and the first reason Jesus came ultimately to die, is to show the wealth of God's love for us and grace for us sinners verse 4, Paul says that his very nature is rich with mercy and full of deep love that he has for us. You know, Scripture is bursting with this truth and it is that God actively pursues us even when we are a worst state. In Romans chapter 5, Paul said it this way. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but here this church but god showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us you see the beauty of the gospel truly the beauty of the entire bible is that god is actively the holy god is actively going after the most undeserving person in all of creation that he is actively pursuing the most unworthy soul And yet, how much does that speak to the love of God? That he would look at people who actively say, God, relationship with you is not something I desire as much as I desire sin. And trust me, we've all said that. Whether you've actually vocalized that or not, when we sin, we say, God, this sin is more desirable than you are in my life. And yet, God actively pursues you in the midst of you saying, I don't want anything to do with you. He pursues you to the point of death on a cross, even further. And the second thing is this. I think the second reason I would say Jesus came to die is because only Jesus could bring victory for us over our enemies, and only he could cancel the debt we could never pay. Going back into Ephesians there, Paul says in verse 2 how we're cle- that clearly before Christ and salvation, we're, just, we're a people who follow after the ruler of this world, you know, Paul goes on to call him the prince of the power of the air. You may know him as Satan or the devil or however you want to call him, but we know who we're talking about here. And Paul says, you follow after that person. And I believe we follow after that person, and we may not necessarily actively follow after him, but we kind of passively follow after him because we know that there's something he holds against us. There's something he plays against us in the relationship with God and us. That if we were to try to go to God, we were to try to pursue God, he would say, But Matt, don't forget your sin. Don't forget all this sin in your life. Don't forget this baggage. Don't forget this chain I have over you, right? And you know, he would be right without Christ. He would be right to say, you can't talk to God. You're not holy enough to talk to God. You're not righteous enough to talk to God. And he would be right. And so he constantly plays that card against us before Christ. But listen to Paul's words in in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says this, Speaking of Christ, he he does this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the beauty is he did that through the cross. It wasn't by great speech. It wasn't by powerful works of magic. He did it through the cross that he canceled out that debt, a debt that, let's be honest, you cannot pay. You constantly go to God with your own goodness, and you say, I've got this good thing. I've done these good works, right? I've done these great things. It's still not enough. There is a debt between you and God before Christ that you cannot pay. But Paul says so clearly that Christ has paid that debt at the cross. And even going back to the Old Testament, one of the passages I love when I think about Jesus coming is Isaiah 53 And you probably all know that's the suffering servant passage, but I want you to listen to verse 10 through 12. And I want you to hear how, and this is going to sound weird to some people, but I want you to hear how it actually pleased God to crush his son. And you hear that and you say, that sounds weird, Matt. But I want us to read here, Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their transgressions or iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and I will divide the bounty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. So God literally delighted in taking His Son to the cross. You may hear that may say, "Well," but I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying God delighted in the way that a bully delights on picking on a small kid and taking his lunch money. I'm not saying that's what God liked. I'm saying that God looked past the cross, past the sin, past the death, and He saw the beauty of what lay on the other side. He saw the beauty of new creation. He saw the beauty of new life to be found in Christ. And that pleased God. It pleased God because God wants you to experience him. He wants you to understand what's going on in his life. He wants you to be a part of that. And so, yes, he went through a very painful moment. I can't imagine my God saying, yeah, I really want to send Jesus to the cross. He deserves that. I bet you it really kind of hurt him at some level. But he said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to push through that because there is good to be found on the other side. There's good to be found on the other side of the cross. And so God joyfully allowed that to happen in history. You see, without the sacrifice of Jesus, Satan could constantly stand and mock us before God. He could constantly stand and say, you're not good enough, you're not justified, you're not holy before this God. And he would be right. But praise be to God that Jesus came to die for us that he came and paid a sacrifice, paid paid a debt that we could not pay in order to bring us in to relationship with God. He's really, he's like, the, he's the one that defeats the giant for us, right? The giant is sin and death, and that may remind you of the story of David and Goliath a little bit, but I want you to understand something here too because we get confused sometimes. In the story of David and Goliath, if you apply that to Christ, you're not David. You're not the one who's gonna beat sin and death. You're not the one who's gonna overcome that hurdle. We, if anybody in the story, we are the Israelites that are cowering over in the corner, terrified of the sin, terrified of that monster. And yet Christ is the David who comes and sec- rescues us. Christ is the one that comes and overcomes the sin for us. So praise be to God, because he's the only one that could do it. So the third thing here is... And so. So what do we do once we've been rescued? How, how do we go after, OK, okay Matt, I understand what you're saying. Christ came and died, and I've heard that a thousand times. I've gotten that. What do I do with that? How do I live life as a Christian tomorrow when my coworkers are annoying? And I would say first things first, you need to rest in the grace of God. Paul says this several times in Ephesians chapter two. He says this, "For by grace." you have been saved. Not, hey, by works you have been saved, or hey, by really good morals you've been saved, but by grace you've been saved. And so you rest in that grace. And we all know what grace is, right? I don't need to give you a whole theological lesson. Grace is that free gift from God. You know, the one we didn't do anything to deserve, the one that God richly lavished on us without our our deserving it or our requiring of it, but God gives it to us, that's what grace is, that free gift. What I love is that Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse seven, he says it this way. You find it here. Talking about this grace it says, "So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." And I want you to think for a second. I want you to think of the marvelous dis- difference, the dichotomy between what life was before salvation and what life is now after salvation. I want you to think about this for a second. Life before salvation, right? Judgment. Death. You're dead. There's no hope, there's no getting better. It's flatlined, terrible. And yet praise be to God, when you come across into Jesus in relationship and you come into eternal life, your life is eternally forever changed. Before it was sin and judgment, now it is blessing and grace. Not saying life is going to be easy all the time, but I'm saying it's going to be grace-filled all the time. And that your eternity is different. Now instead of an eternity of judgment, you have an eternity of exploring and knowing the beauty of God. Can you think about that for a second? Like We're not going to just sit around heaven all day and just sing songs. We might do that for a while, but I don't think we're going to spend all of eternity just singing songs. I think we're going to get to explore the riches and beauty of the grace of God, as Paul talks about there in the coming age. Think about that. You see, God's grace is not like a math equation. Or you just solve it, you do a few arithmetic numbers, and Mel can't do this very well, but you do a few a little bit of math. You say, oh, the answer is 37. I get it. that's what grace is. It's 37, I understand now. And you just plug that away in your mind. No, grace is not math. Grace is an ocean for you to explore. And you will continually do that after salvation. You will continually get to experience, and you will continually get to taste and see that the Lord is good because of the grace of God. So cherish that truth. That your eternity has changed from eternity of nothing and torment to an eternity of grace and beauty and exploring and knowing that grace more and more each day. And that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, if you were to ask certain people, the chief end of man is to know God and to make him know and to enjoy him forever. And we get to do that, right? We get to know God in salvation. We get to enjoy him forever in heaven. You see, sin, the reality of sin is that it blinds us from that truth about enjoying God, knowing God. It says the chief end of man is to get a great job, or to have a great family that doesn't cry during our service on Sunday morning, or maybe to have a great house, or maybe to come up in a nice car on Sunday, or to have a nice suit. That's the chief end of man. No, no. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. And grace allows you to come back into that reality, that you are so blinded by sin, so blinded by pursuits of the world, but that grace opens your eyes and you come back into understanding that no, this thing really is about knowing God. It's about enjoying the goodness of our God. So I want to give a brief little kind of disclaimer about the works side of salvation because the Bible speaks very clearly that we are supposed to do good things after salvation, right? We're supposed to do good works But how do you balance that in life? If if you're supposed to rest in the grace of God, how do you balance the works that God calls us to do, like going and making disciples of all the nations, or being at peace with all people? How do you balance that out? And I want to say something, is that there's a very dangerous, fine line we can walk there that can get us into some really deep and dark waters if we don't understand the beauty of grace. You see, I think so many people would say that okay, I've received salvation, I've received the grace of God, and now I use that as a launching pad to get me into this Christian life, and now I just work at it, right? I do good things and I work hard so that, heaven forbid, I do something too bad and God gets really mad at me, and then it's thunderbolts and lightning, and that's very, very frightening, right? But we think that sometimes, we think that sometimes because we don't rest in the grace of God, we don't understand that God has brought us into peace. And maybe you hear that word and peace is a distorted word for you. I think so often when we hear peace, we might think of a peace treaty, and we might think of the idea that you know two warring countries come to a peace treaty, right? They say, "Hey, I'm not going to bomb you anymore." And you say, "That's great. I'm not going to blow you up anymore either." And we we shake hands and we sign a cord. And we hear that and we say, but we know they hate each other, right? They're still not friends. Like, they're not going to have tea after this. And they know that at a moment's notice, if one of them feels like it, they'll just forget that peace tree and they'll go after the other person again. And I think so often in our lives, we think the same thing with God. If I, just, if I mess up again, if I, you know, if I fall a little bit, if I stumble in this Christian life, He's just going to be mad at me. I'm going to have to start all over again. I want you to listen to a definition of peace that comes from the Strong's Dictionary. And I wanted to hopefully give you just a bigger picture of what peace actually is. When God says we're at peace, I want you to see a bigger picture here. Because peace could also mean, in the sense I'm saying like shalom, the Jewish word for peace, it could also mean completeness or wholeness mean health or peace or welfare or safe soundness it can mean tranquility, prosperity, even, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, and this is my favorite one, the absence of agitation or discord. You see, when we come into relationship with God, when we allow God, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, take us from being children of wrath in verse 3 to being seated next to Christ in verse six. When we allow that to be true in our lives, then we get peace. And yes, I'm going to stumble. Yes, I'm going to fall. Yes, I'm going to have days where I do not measure up. But that's when I rest in the grace of God. I come to the Lord for forgiveness, and I rest in that grace that's already put me exactly where I need to be. I don't do more good works to get closer to God at the dinner table, or to get a bigger high five from Jesus at the end of the day. I'm already exactly where God's put me at through salvation. And those who have received Christ in here, you are too. So rest in the grace of God and still work, still go, because that's the beauty of it. Now that you've experienced the grace of God, now that you've felt the grace of God in your life, the natural reaction I think would be, well, what can I do for him, right? If he is that great, if he is that marvelous, he is that loving, what can I do Not that I feel like I need to, but I just want to serve this God. I want to follow him. I want to do what he's called me to do because he's done so much for me. It should be the natural overflow of your heart, not the forced thing of your heart, to avoid the anger of God. So the last point here. The last thing I would say is that allow God to continue to work in your life. Let's go back into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul concludes this section by saying that you are God's workmanship. Some of your versions may have a different word. Some of your versions may have the word masterpiece in there. And you're thinking to me right now, well, Matt, I don't really feel like a masterpiece most days. Maybe like a Picasso or something like that, but I'm not a masterpiece. And what we need to understand is that in the beginning, when God created it, he called it good. When he created humanity, he called it good. He even called it very good. And sin... And corruption has tarnished that image that God made us with. The image of God is tarnished by sin. And it's muddied and it's clouded up that we don't even recognize that image anymore half the time when we look in the mirror. But at salvation, we are allowed to turn back towards God. We are, about to, we are allowed to turn back into that reflection of Christ Jesus. But in order to do that, we have to allow God to chip and chisel away at all the things in our life that do not look like Christ. But hear me when I say that. You allow God to do that. You're his workmanship, not your own. And so how do you do that, though? How do you allow God to chip and chisel away at your life? How do I do that? I want to be a masterpiece. How do I get there? In order to know what Christ even looks like, you have to know Christ, and you find him in this word. It's not a very small pamphlet it's a big book because there's a lot to understand about our God and the way you understand the way you see that reflection is you look at the face of Jesus you look at the word of God I had a seminary professor who would always say this and I thought it was so clever and I thought it was so well-worded that I can't say it any better he said that when we read the Bible the reality is that the Bible is reading you And Scripture is pointing out through the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture is pointing out things that, hey, this doesn't look like my son Jesus. Hey, this part doesn't look quite like him yet. Can we tweak that a little bit? Can we work on this here? Because when we allow, when we read Scripture, we allow it to read us. And we allow it to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ, the image we were created to be. And some of us hear that and we start to get very nervous. We hear that And we say, Matt, what happens if if God is looking at me, if God is reading me, what happens when he finds that thing that I don't tell anybody about? That secret sin, that skeleton in my closet, that thing that is so gross that I never even pray about it because I'm so embarrassed about it. What happens when God finds that? Is he going to reject me? Is he going to push me away? Is he going to say, I don't want anything to do with this. I didn't realize I had damaged goods. What's going to happen when he sees that? I can't let him know. A.W. Tozer is just a brilliant Christian thinker. He wrote this on on God's omniscience or God's all-knowing ability. And just allow these words to meet that fear right now. Allow these words to meet that insecurity that whatever you're holding on to is too ugly for God. He says, How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No tailbearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us, since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. So this morning as we're thinking about why did Jesus come and he came to go to the cross for you and me and we're thinking about well, what if I'm just not lovable enough? What if I'm not good enough? What if he sees this crack on the right side of me? What if he, doesn't, what if he finds out that I just can't do it? Can we just rest in the truth this season that God has already known everything about your life, even the bad things you haven't done yet? He has seen those already and he has already paid the cost for you. And God will continually hold you in his hands, and he never has, nor will he ever have, buyer's remorse for you. So let's pray. You're thinking, well, there is that secret sin in my life. There is that thing that's just so ugly. If God already knows about it, if God is already acutely aware of that problem that you've been holding on to in your life for so long, if he's aware of it and loves you for it, why don't you just come give it to him? Don't even come talk to me up here. Don't even come talk to me at this stage or anybody else. Why don't you just come down to this altar if you need to and say, God, I don't want to carry this anymore. God, I don't want this filth in my life. I want to look like you, and I need to put this down. I'm not saying something spiritual or magical is going to happen up here that you're going to magically feel better, but I'm saying there's something about coming up here and letting yourself be prone towards the Lord in submission and humility and saying, I don't want to carry this anymore. There's something about that. And I don't want you to care what the person next to you on your left or right thinks about. I don't want you to care about who's going to say something next week at the Bible study. I want you to know this is a time between you and God. So, Father, we're here, and, Lord, you're mighty, and, Lord, you're good, and, God, you ransomed heaven for us when we were so undeserving, when we were so broken in our sin and our trespasses that we smelled of death, that you came and you paid it all for us. And, Lord, guys, we are sitting here born again, known by you, understood by you, Lord, would you help us to come lay down those things that do not look like you, and to continue to allow us to be shaped into your image. Lord, our ultimate goal is just to know you and to enjoy you. We can't do that when sin holds on to us. So Father God, help us. that there's someone here in this room right now that that just needs to receive you for the first time, for salvation to come, what a marvelous time of year to receive the, the blessing of the Lord. That the greatest gift that was ever come, the great beauty of the manger that led to the reality of our need for the cross, would they just receive that right now? Lord, if there's somebody here who needs to be baptized to follow you, Lord, if there's somebody here that needs to join this church in obedience to following you and being a part of the family of God, would you help them this morning? Lord God, would you please move them out of their seat to come talk to somebody? So Father, be with us right now. Lord oh God, we love you. God, we trust you. You're amazing. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
2: that is greater than all sin sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss grace that is greater yes grace untold points to the refuge the mighty cross grace